Welcome to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm Brittany, your host, and today we will be unpacking the rent-to-income ratio. What is the rent-to-income ratio, you ask? Well, it's an industry metric that landlords have come to use more and more to determine the financial stability um, of the outcome of their tenant. The industry benchmark is around 30%, so that is if you allocate um, 30% of your monthly net income to rent that would qualify or define one as someone that is financially stable. So the lesser the number, the better um, status one would be. However, similar to credit, it's hard to encapsulate one's financial standing through just one simple number or ratio, which is why we have decided to unpack this figure and get the opinion from an expert. United Way California recently came out with their second edition of their Struggling to Stay Afloat report, which states that nearly four in 10 households in California pay more than 30% of their income on housing. So like us, they saw the flaws of the archaic metric and chose to create their own, um, the real cost measure. So this measure creates a more holistic picture of one's financial status and thus really measuring their one's ability to pay rent. To get a better understanding of the rent-to-income ratio, uh, we chat with Henry Gascon, the Director of Programs and Policy at United Way California, also a co-author of the report. So Henry, why don't we just start um, by just one, telling us a little bit about United Ways California, um, and then your role specifically within the organization. Sure. Thanks so much, Brittany. Glad to be on. So United Way is actually one of the oldest nonprofits in the United States that was actually just founded during Reconstruction um, after, oh. after slavery. Yeah. So it was founded in Denver, I believe, back in the 18, uh, 1860s or 1870s. Okay. Um, but for most of our history, we've been deeply engaged with workplace partners throughout the country, with Target, UPS, Bank mm -hmm. of America, and helping those employees foster the common good. Um, so we would actually go into these workplace campaigns, um, share with them a lot about the great work that United Way is doing locally, um, either in supporting boys and girls clubs and, and helping them with local health, education, financial stability, whatever that local community's needs were, United Way was always in the picture and try to mobilize um, workplace partners into that, into that picture. So for the past 15 or 20 years, United Way has gone through a bit of a transformation in terms of focusing more on community impact, okay. focusing more on the health, education, and financial stability needs of low-income children and families. Um, so many United Ways throughout the country and in fact globally are focusing on that community impact agenda. And we here at, in California, there are 31 United Ways in, throughout the entire states. Um, and many United Ways uh, serve all, all portions of multiple counties or an individual county throughout the, throughout, um, throughout the states. And what United Ways of California does as a state association is that we try to coordinate the advocacy work among all of these 31 United Ways. Okay. in terms of aligning a lot of our work in terms of health, education, and financial stability. So we connect a lot of our members to shared grant opportunities that are within that particular community impact model. Um, we support the network, the resource development needs, um, and various types of member services. Okay, fantastic. Wow, it sounds like you have a huge organization and a huge <laughs> job. Um, so it's fun. And <laughs> it's fun. No, that's yeah. good. And so as the uh, director of program and policy development, um, what specifically is your role in it? Do you spearhead this report or, um, and, and, and how, how do you fit in, in the overall organization? 
Yeah, I work, I work primarily with the development of, of the real cost measure and a few, a few other initiatives we, we have within the organization. So the okay. real cost measure, just for a broader context, um, is a new financial stability report that we've developed for California. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why we did this is because we found that the official poverty measure in the United States is very inadequate. Okay. So, for example, um, it was the, the official poverty measure was founded during Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty in the 1960s. Wow. And it was primarily, based, yeah, there's a lot there. And, uh, of course, if you're going to have a war on poverty, you need something to measure it by. So there's a famous story about uh, a work, an employee at the Social Security Administration named Molly Orshansky who calculated that it was the cost of food that it was that was primarily the cost of most family uh, most of a family's household expenses. Um, so um, so ever since then we've been using the cost of food for our official poverty measure, but it's been adjusted for inflation ever since. So what it doesn't account for, of course, is that the official poverty measure doesn't speak to the cost of housing, healthcare, childcare, transportation and all of the other basic needs that our family needs to survive. Right. So we created a new poverty measure called the Real Cost mm -hmm. Measure, which really kind of um, reflects the real cost of living in California. Okay. We talk about some of the challenges many families go through every single day. Um, so we've been using this outdated formula, the official, the official federal poverty level for pretty much everything in terms of federal program eligibility for welfare requirements and things like that. But we didn't think it was an accurate measure just in terms of the challenges and the experiences that most families go through every day. Wow, you just ticked off like two of my questions already. <laughs> well, thank you. That's a very great history lesson and absolutely the metrics that one uses, especially at the federal level with respect to poverty and, um, and in time with respect to um, income and how that's measured um, on a grander scale is very important. Um, so, so more, less on the macro and more on the micro, um, with respect to housing specifically, um, I'll just get right to it. The general rule of thumb um, for a financially healthy and stable tenant is a rent-to-income rent ratio of approximately 30%. Your report states that, quote, in, in the most latest one, um, nearly four in 10 households in California, so that is 35%, pay actually more than this um, of their income on housing, which, which to you, you, you know, it, it's, it's not surprising, but, but what does that say about A, the metric, right? So should the industry start thinking about increasing this and saying like, okay, now it can be 40% or, uh, you know, like what's the better metric? And, and is this something that is sure. viable anymore from both the landlord and our tenant perspective? Right, and what we're talk, primarily talking about here is housing burden, which is the percentage of a household income is yes. actually allocated for, towards, towards housing. And you're right, for, from your, the finding from our report is that we find that up to 38% of households spend at least 38, 30% of their income on housing. Mm -hmm. And looking at the data we spend that um, most families spend easily 40 to 50% of their income on housing. And for the poor and the more struggling that you are, many of these struggling households um, can easily spend 60, 70, or even up to 80% of their income on housing. Wow. So it's quite a challenge for them when they're trying to reconcile everything else in terms of childcare costs, healthcare costs, and all the other needs that families have to go through every single day. Um, so I was talking a little bit about some of the differences between the official poverty measure and the real cost measure is that, you know, on average in California, 
the official poverty measure, it, according to, to the U.S. government, is usually around 12 to 14 percent on any given time or any given year. Okay. But we find that up to a third of families are struggling to make ends meet when you take into account those basic needs in terms of housing, healthcare, childcare, transportation, and, and things of that sort. Right. Um, and housing is obviously one of the biggest barriers in terms of affordability for not only many low-income families, but also for the middle class. And we're seeing it we've, in California and in many parts of the country, such as New York and other metropolitan areas, we've seen housing prices just increase uh, significantly across the board. Um, so part of that is um, one of the things that we've been kind of flagging is just like in light of that, are people actually moving? So mm -hmm. do people actually move with their feet just in terms of being able to find more affordable housing? And we've seen some um, uh, experience in that Los Angeles County where I live, where many okay. people tend to go yeah. out to the inland valleys or other areas where they can find more affordable housing. But that also comes at a great cost because sometimes they'll retain their jobs in LA County or in downtown, for example, and that just uh, creates new transportation problems in terms of getting to work longer. And we, we're seeing many of these families who are easily spending two to three hours of their day on transportation just because, just so they can uh, use, uh, find and access more affordable housing right. in other areas. Exactly. And one, one of the other challenges that we're seeing, of course, is the increasing childcare costs as well. So childcare facilities are incredibly expensive, no matter pretty much where you live in the United States. Um, and many families can easily spend just as much on childcare as they can on housing, especially if, um, if, if they have an, uh, 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 a kid by the age, well, ages of two to three to four. It's a lot of uh, investment in terms of being able to take, take care of them full time before they actually enter kindergarten and those primary school years. Um, so that's one of the things that United Way has been focusing on is looking at how to make childcare and housing and uh, healthcare and all these basic needs more affordable for low income families. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so one of the uh, statistics that struck out to me in, in uh, your last response is that of uh, between 60 to 80% of these families, um, they are spending more than 30% of their of their income on housing. So, so what do these families do, right? I mean, like, where, where do they go? Do they rely on uh, alternative sources of credit? Or do they, you know, uh, you know, there's only so many, you know, government assistance um, paychecks you can right. get. Uh, That's right reported on so so where you see do you see like a shift in uh, or like like you said in the latter part of that do you see that lots more moving or uh, like what what are the trends and, and how have those renters um, uh, overcome that like application barrier I guess or that financial barrier I think for the populations that we're primarily studying is that one of the challenges that they face is inconsistent income throughout the calendar year mm. um, and, and there's been some great research done by Jonathan Murdoch at NYU and this great book called The Financial Diaries, where they track, you know, about 250 families or so throughout the country. And they were talking about, you know, what are, how does money come in and how does money come out during any given year? Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you look at a family in retail or within the manufacturing industry, they'll realize that, you know, up to, up, leading up to the holidays, they usually get um, more hours of pay offered and hence increased pay. And then January and February comes along and the demand for the holiday um, shopping no longer is no longer needed. So the hours are cut and, and things like that. And then spring comes along and then comes tax season 
where many families get a, a, an income boost thanks to programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit and other, other federal programs that they may be eligible for. And then, you know, uh, during summer and fall, sometimes the, that income will flatten out again. So there's this constant cycle of in and out in terms of income volatility that these families go through every single day. So as a result of that, families often have to make choices just in terms of borrowing. Uh, they often borrow from other families. Okay. You know, they often have to go just make sacrifices just in terms of the household expenses every day. So for example, if things are really lean, if I, if I really need to make my monthly rent payment this month, um, sometimes I'll have to cut back on my child's school supplies mm -hmm. or being able to kind of break down, uh, use electricity less in order to make sure that I'm able to have enough funds at the end of the month in order to make ends meet. Right. So these are the challenges that I think would, would be helpful for many landlords and for those in the housing industry to realize is, you know, these, many of these families, especially these low-income families, have incredible challenges that they go through every day, not only just in terms of you know, worrying about the everyday financial costs, but even the emotional costs, such as how in the world am I going to be able to get my kid to um, the hospital today when, I, don't, when um, I, I was barely able to cover this month's rent and I don't have a lot of extra income left? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or um, how am I going to be able to pay for my student loan payment at the end of the month? Um, things like that. Or, and of course, um, we're seeing uh, many younger families struggling quite a bit with credit card, challenge, credit card debt and with uh, student, uh, student loans. So the, and those are two aspects that we don't cover in our report because they're not kind of reflected as a basic need, but there are certainly expenses that most of these households um, go through. So mm -hmm. let me give you an example. Um, sure. We have a great interactive tool on our website called uh, how, uh, our interactive household budgets. Yes, I saw and that. Yes. In, and in there, you could actually select any county in California. And you could put in the age numbers of all the people in your household, and it will tell you the minimum that the family would need to survive to make ends meet. So let's say we have a family of four in LA County, and let's say we have two working adults in their 30s and their 40s. Mm -hmm. They have uh, a school-aged child, maybe age of eight, 10, and they have uh, another kid uh, aged uh, one or two, so an infant. Okay. Um, so according to regulations, it would take that family of four in LA County $82,000 in income in order to meet just the very the, the, bare, the barest essentials of life. Wow. Yeah. Um, um, so it's, it speaks about, and some of those biggest barriers are reflected in the cost of housing and childcare. Yeah. Um, so those are the challenges that many families have to go through every single day. And overall, we find that there's over um, 3.3 uh, million households in California who are going through these challenges. Wow, that's. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, I, I actually played around. Thank you for bringing that up, uh, Henry. The uh, the budget calculators. I actually played around with that um, in prep for this interview. And then even uh, so, I did uh, age of thirty, and I did San Francisco County, um, just because that seemed pretty uh, uh, status quo. And, and it said I would have to make not that I'm thirty, but around that demographic, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would have to make just under three grand, so $2,798 per month, um, per month yeah. Yeah, as, as a single in California, which, um, yeah, is absurd. It's just as absurd as the 82 grand figure that you, that you, threw, that you threw out for the four-person uh, four family. So um, thank, that, thank you. That's, that's 
a wealth of information. So many things we can unpack there. Um, one of the first things I thought about uh, when you spoke about the inconsistent income is is the use of credit um, and the credit industry. And and um, so here in Aberly, we in our reports, um, we which I think I sent to you, and and you saw that we break down the rent to income, uh, and that's also calculated into our our analyses. But we also use the the credit score um, from um, Equifax, which is one of the three largest. Um, uh, credit bureaus in North America um, for our analyses. However, we find that, you know, the reason, part of the whole reason why we became an organization is, is that like we found that credit just does not give the entirety of, of any financial situation, similar as, as how you guys at United Way are unpacking the archaic the fair market rent, the one from Lyndon Johnson's uh, era, it just was not, price of food just cannot encapsulate, you know, the cost of living, right? Um, and so, so, so what? Um, so, I guess one, the question is, do you think that um, pulling credit or looking at someone's credit file is that synonymous with, or does that give just as much of a glimpse as into someone's, you know, financial stability? And I understand landlords often look at that information because it's one of the most acceptable to ask in terms of being, in terms of tenant eligibility and. They primarily want to find out if a particular tenant is able to consistently afford the cost of housing and that they won't have to worry about them throughout the year. Yep. Um, but for the for the low-income families that we actually track on any given day, it's very difficult for them to build a, a credit history, right? Mm. Um, so I think being able to access a credit is, is, is a big challenge. And mm-hmm. in some cases, we're even seeing many of these families using payday lending firms, right? Mm. Um, in, in order to access funds, in order to, in order to borrow money, in order to make ends meet for any, for any given month. Um, mm. So obviously with that borrowing, um, and if they don't pay it consistently and on time, it's gonna hurt their FICO store. Yep. And, and, and in many cases, many of these households spend years paying back the debt from these payday lending firms. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that we're trying to do at United Way is help, help these families become financially secure by connecting them to resources at the time that they need them. Um, so United Way is a big investor in 211, um, which is a toll-free um, telephone service where they can just dial 211. And they can access a whole slew of health and human service information that are available to them. So that's an example of types of social capital that we try to connect families to in terms of being able to access services and programs that actually may help help boost them up and help them become financial financially secure. Mm-hmm. So there's other programs that we link them to, um, such as the Earn Income Tax uh, Credit, which is one of the most successful anti-poverty programs that we have in, in, in not only California, but throughout the state. We now have a state version, um, Cal EATC, in effect for that. And there's a new retirement program called Cal Savers, where um, if where it's a state-sponsored retirement program, and families are automatically um, enrolled into the program, and they would have to choose that to opt out on their own. That would give them an avenue to build savings on their own. Mm-hmm. So um, we understand how many landlords use FICO scores, but there's, but it's important to understand some of the daily challenges that families below the real class measure face every day, just in terms of, like a single parent, for example. And we find that up to 72% of single mothers um, uh, are below the real cost measure. And, and it's, it speaks to not only the, some of the financial burdens, but also the emotional burdens, just in terms of not only are you the breadwinner for that family, but 
and also the entire emotional support system for that family as well. If it's one kid, two kids, or three kids, whatever it is. So you're often juggling um, getting to work on time. Some of these parents often work two to three different jobs throughout the entire year, and they work different hours. Right. And that obviously compromises their ability to spend time with their children, um, to uh, spend time with them in after-school programs, to make sure that they get uh, that they're ready to go to bed. Um, and some of these, some of these families, these low-income families, simply don't have the bandwidth in order to um, be there for the children and help with their cognitive developments, which is so so essential in terms of their lifelong learning. So, those are the kinds of uh, things that United Way is actually trying to focus on in terms of really helping to improve these families' financial stability. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank. Thank you. That's a slew of resources and definitely. Um, Needed, needed for all, I think. Um, <laughs> so I'll take a slight pivot here. So uh, what we all know, like, regardless if you're in California or here in Ontario uh, or anywhere, that, that policy and government plays a huge role um, in, in housing. And um, similar uh, problem we have here is, is the, the lack uh, of supply of affordable housing. And then I know I've, you know, in the last month, I don't know how many talks I've been to where you have politicians barking at developers, <laughs> barking at, you know, and, and, and it, it's the same in, in any budding city. San Francisco is similar. However, the, you guys are, I guess, more saturated and more developed in that regard. Um, could you speak to um, some of the recent or maybe older policies that uh, the municipal or statewide <laughs> policies yeah. that have been in place right. and how that has maybe put more power to landlords or it sounds like more uh, to the tenants um, in this regard for California. Can, can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I mean, during Lyndon Johnson's war in poverty, I mean, it was relatively um, accessible to for families to buy homes, especially yeah. the middle class and everything else. And of course, as time has gone on, um, the housing stock has, of course, shifted and, has, and, and, the, and the cost of living has obviously increased now that we're in 2019 compared to what it was in, in the 1960s. Um, so just to give you kind of one big finding that we have in the Rural Pass Measure Report is that since uh, 1997, I believe it was, California's GDP, the gross domestic product, which is the value of all the goods and services produced in the state, has increased 143%. But the median household earnings for average Californians has only increased 13% during that same amount of time. Wow, how does so that happen? The price of goods and services continue to increase, but for the most part, if, if, and if you take a look at that over the past two or three decades, the middle class hasn't gotten a raise, you can argue, easily since the middle of the 1970s. Mm. The biggest change. And when you put when you lay our housing on top of that, it makes it even harder. So um, that we're big, big advocates for housing across the board. Um, in LA, we have this homeless population in in the country about only sixty thousand homeless persons on any given night. Two thirds of whom are unsheltered. Part of it is because a big part of it is because of the housing problem and the lack of affordable housing. Um, but it, when I'm talking about that, it's not just the need for building new housing stock, but also converting existing housing stock to make it more accessible more and more affordable for families. And that's a big challenge that California is experiencing today. Yeah. So one thing about the real cost measure is, and 
the virtues of United Way's work is that we're often, uh, bring, um, we're often the agent that brings unlikely communities and stakeholders together. Mm. Um, so um, convenings and presentations around the real cost measure throughout the entire state. And we bring housing developers, we bring elected officials, we bring, we bring nonprofits, we bring the corporate community into these conversations to talk about the cost of living. Mm-hmm. In many cases, when we've done this over the past year, is that many of these uh, uh, stakeholders have never even met each other before, yeah. especially government officials. Yeah. So able to kind of link all the dots together and actually have people communicating with one another and having them get an understanding of um, the needs facing um, the cost of living in California, particularly the population that we're studying below the real cost measure, I think it's going to bring a great level of understanding and being able to address um, housing costs and housing affordability throughout the state. I know that Newsom, our new governor here in California, has made housing affordability uh, a big priority. Um, and we're, we're definitely being, you know, in a way, it's definitely part of that picture just in terms of um, being able to access, uh, connect people to affordable housing at any given time throughout the state. And we need to do more of that, um, not only with housing, but also with other services, such as childcare, mm-hmm. um, which is for many families. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're able to bring housing developers, government a- agencies, and have them hear the stories just in terms of what these families have to go through every day in terms of being able to afford the cost of housing mm-hmm. and other basic needs, I-, I think we can actually begin to address some of these problems. And you know, the way it's been helping to shape a role in that. Oh, that's fantastic. No, communication is definitely key. And between the organizations or parties that never seem to really like each other, but but that's, you know, you have to overcome that over adversity, right? So, yeah. <laughs> but it's okay, you know, in a way, this is uh, paving the way. What would you suggest or recommend to a new landlord in California um, when they're looking for their next tenant? Yeah. So we often see um, the last thing that we want to create is market inefficiencies within the housing markets. We obviously, it's an inefficiency for landlords to have empty apartments sitting there and not uh, being able to gain revenue on a month-to-month basis from, yep. from unused housing stock. And it's also an inefficiency from the tenant perspective, but just in terms of not being able to find the right housing. So I think being able to find the right matches for the community, for, for the families that, that need it at any given time is really important. Um, and I think it's really important to help existing tenants um, mm. with, with their services. So I think we often lose sight of that in terms of, you know, many of the families below the real cost measure could easily be one or two paychecks away from not being able to afford um, uh, your, your monthly housing rent. So mm. if, if landlords can actually be a little bit more attuned to that and focus on, well, what are some of the things that we can actually do to help them just in terms of, can we connect them to other jobs and services in our area? Can mm. we help invest in a job fair that will actually keep our tenants uh, here in, in our building? I think those are great things. Or even looking at, are, is there some sort of a communal childcare facility that we could actually invest in to make the to, to make the lives and the welfare of these children a little bit easier day in and day out, mm-hmm. um, and often you know many of these apartment complexes throughout the state is that you know many people live in silos. They have kind of just into their own business. You'll often see your neighbors just when you're picking up the mail, but there aren't many central social activities where they can interact and talk about some of the common opportunities, joys in life that they experience every day. Let alone the challenges, right? Mm-hmm. So. 
I think if landlords can actually pay attention to those and actually create opportunities for, hey, let's actually just do once a year, mm-hmm. let's spend a little bit of the income that we get from our tenants and just say thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, have some sort of a, a two-hour social event, um, a free lunch or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and just say thank you for you know, being here for the past three or four years for being yeah. part of this community. Yeah. No, that uh, I think, Henry, that's a great point. Instead of trying to find, you know, already, uh, you know, disregarding tenants who who may be moving and saying, hey, like, they're already here, let's try to make them better, or they're already within our grasp, right? And, and, uh, you know, they're going to have to go find another place anyway. Um, When when you were talking, that's reminded me of, like, give me so many flashbacks of, uh, like, I think, Last December, our our um, Serene, he's my property manager. I actually saw him on the elevator down in my apartment this morning. Um, he last Christmas or last December, he he did like a little morning breakfast for all of us, and we're like a 16-story apartment building. I don't know, like a couple hundred you know units, and he got um, uh, uh, Tim Hortons, which is like our Starbucks. Uh, cheaper Starbucks equivalent here in Canada and uh, a bunch of coffee, right? And it, it was great, right? And it brought everyone together in the morning and um, and little things like that, right? I think definitely maybe, well, you know, uh, it, it will, I those like types of things I will remember, right? For the next time, maybe right. to find my lease Absolutely. or when I like run into my neighbor or whatever. And so um, I definitely agree with that. A lot of good things. And it, and it also creates a community of trust between exactly. the relationship between the landlord and the tenant exactly. and to them, Hey, you know what? I'm, you know, I, I don't want to be afraid to you. There's something going on in my apartment from a plumbing issue or some sort of repair. Exactly. I just want to be able to have you be accessible and just let you know about the problem because it's exactly. also an inefficiency from the landlord's perspective in terms exactly. of having something broken or having a, a water leak. So exactly. um, I, I, I think the relationship between tenants and landlords is absolutely critical. And, and the more that, that relationship is fostered over time, it also strengthens layers of trust, which I think are needed. Yep, no, I, I completely agree. And and one last thing, you, you mentioned something great in there as well is with with respect to data or respect to information exchange and, and having not just from the tenant side or applicant side, understanding like A, what the process is or, you know, like when I signed my first lease when I graduated, <laughs> I, right. I went to, I went to a, um, I, I college town and uh, I remember me and my friends and I we were just looked at this lease and we were like you know it was like 50 pages we we're like we don't even know what to look for right we don't know right. what we don't know right and right. So we're just signing our lives away right but um you know to this landlord she was fine but 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 more so of like data from the tenant's perspective you know what what should I look for and and more so who who are the good tenants right or who are the good yeah. landlords who's right. Because it, it could go both ways that there could be like professional landlord equivalents, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and the other way around of, of landlords understanding who, you know, who's going to, you know, damage my property, who can't um, help. Because at the end of the day, right, like it's, it's, um, it's a relationship, right? It's a two-way street. Um, and so I think that's a great point of, of creating. And I know there are forums out there on, in New York. There's, I can't, I can't at this one moment but it was on my LinkedIn feed I swear um, of, of just kind of democratizing that data of, of good uh, landlords and it was basically like tenant reviews um, and yeah. they reviewed different rental buildings in there so um, I, I think I think that pretty much sums it up I don't know those were all the questions that I had um, I don't know if you had any questions for me or anything that I should have asked you but I did not that you would like to share and, and talk about 
Um, it was a wealth of knowledge. I'm, I'm, I, was, I don't know if you saw like scribbling everything down. <laughs> uh, and go look up that book, yeah, The Inconsistent yeah. Income. One, but um, well, yeah, it's uh, The Financial Diaries by Jonathan Murdoch and okay. Rachel Snyder. Okay, Murdoch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. And I think it was published two years ago. And, and we okay. cited it as part of our report just in terms of oh, the, income, the, income, the income challenges and expense challenges that many families face every day. Okay. But I just wanted to thank Neighborly and, and for you to bring awareness just in terms of what are some of the things that tenants have to deal with on a regular basis, especially those who are not financially and, and stable or secure and talking about how some of the decisions that they have to deal with just in terms of not only housing costs, but also other household costs that, you know, most landlords don't pay attention to in terms of, yeah, we, at the end of the, at the end of the day, we just want to make sure that our month gets here on time, mm -hmm. um, that there's stable tenants, that mm -hmm. there's no um, drama going on within the mm -hmm. complex or anything else, but uh, being able to stay tuned in terms of what these families go through every day, just in terms of their financial challenges and their emotional challenges yeah. is, is, a, is really important. Yeah, um, so exactly. if the landlord can actually establish that relationship of understanding and trust, being so creating social opportunities for them to create a community, I think those are all good things. Yeah, remember that I wanted to ask you about like county by county analysis um, and kind of like your overall key findings. Like you don't have to pull any percentages sure. or anything, but like right. <laughs> you're like, oh, I'm ready. You're <laughs> <laughs> no pulling a finder, by the way. <laughs> It's like actually, um, I have your Excel up on my laptop, but um, I figured instead of me trying to summarize it, I'd probably have you summarize it. But just kind of like a overall kind of a snapshot of California, yeah. what your your big picture um, uh, uh, analyses were. Yeah. So we know in California, we're essentially, if, if it was its own entity, not that we're advocating for that, California yeah. would be the fifth largest economy in, in, in the world. Um, and part of that growth is because it's, it's amazing when you think about that. Um, <laughs> bigger than many European and, and, and Euro European countries and everything else. But um, uh, a lot of that has to do with the growth of, of course, technology in Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. which is really helped California's economy grow significantly over the past uh, 30, 40 years. But right. at the same time, we also have the Central Valley, which is often considered the breadbasket of the entire world in terms of we're able, we have great weather, we, are, we have um, good water concentration in, in, the, in those areas at times. Obviously, we're going through a drought, but being able to provide food for other parts of the country is, is huge for California's economy right. as well. Um, so, but in light of that, there's also extreme differences just in terms of just affordability in California. So we know for the San Francisco Bay Area, which is home, of course, to Silicon Valley, um, and there's far more concentrated wealth in that area, we still find that up to 25% of households in, in the San Francisco Bay Area are struggling to get by. And this goes um, the, the full gamut in terms of, look at teachers, for example. Um, teachers often can't afford to um, afford housing on their own, so they often have to double up in many cases with two or three other teachers, especially when they're young um, and, and, and getting into their careers in, in terms of being just able to being able to make ends meet in the San Francisco Bay Area. But if you talk, if you look at um, the Central Valley, for example, which distributes food for most of the states throughout the country, um, we see that up to 40, uh, up to uh, what is a 40% of families in the Central Valley are struggling to get by. And many of those are mm -hmm. agricultural workers 
and you could see them, many of them are struggling with educational attainments. Um, so despite the fact that California is pretty great in terms of prosperity, a strong economy, it has its educational attainment challenges. In mm -hmm. fact, it fluctuates the highest amount of people without high school diplomas. Um, so that speaks a lot in terms of we have a high concentration of you know people with um, college college degrees and graduate degrees um, highest in the country. But when it comes to that very basic educational team in terms of high school graduation rates, struggling. Um, and we're seeing that a lot of that struggle coming out in Los Angeles County and Central Valley and so on and so forth. But um, we're seeing housing affordability kind of fluctuate in the Inland Empire, Riverside and San Bernardino counties, um, just east of, of LA County and north of us as well, where people are moving out there. But because so many people are moving out there, um, housing costs are actually increasing there as well. So um, we're assessing continuously, continuously how are housing costs changing and how are, and are they becoming affordable or less affordable in areas as people become priced out, if you will. Mm. Um, many people in the San Francisco Bay Area who have been moving to other uh, parts of the country, such as Portland and Seattle, and those communities are now being priced out as well. So in fact, Seattle, huge housing crisis problem just because there's just, you have uh, so much of a large population and some and a limited housing stock. So um, able to see these migration trends even within uh, county to county, but also from state to state is, is very interesting. Um, but And you look at other places like Northern California, which is just south of Oregon, 35% of those families are starting to make ends meet. So it really varies just in terms of um, where California, how much income that you're making, mm -hmm. and uh, those are all factors in terms of what it takes to make ends meet. Right. Childcare, rotation costs, all of those are factors. Exactly. Um, I have learned a lot. Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time for us. Brittany, I really appreciate your time yeah. and for your willingness to do this and for you finding the, the real cost measure and learning about us and your outreach to us. Um, and it was a pleasure to meet and talk with you. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to meet you as well, Henry. <laughs>